Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. Chapter 11 of Daniel, so turn there for a moment. Verses 1 to 20, and we're going to use it, the NLT for our reading. It'll be a little easier for you to follow. Insert my introduction at this point before we read it. So remember, the second half of the book of Daniel consists of four visions. That's chapter 7 through 12. Four visions, unlike the first half. This is the last vision. So, vision number four, and it occupies chapter 10 through 12. Actually, up to verse 4 of chapter 12. And then we have the conclusion to the book. So, we're in the last one. This is a very extended prophecy that's in this chapter. It's unlike the other portions of Daniel. It's just pure narrative. It's all verbal. Why I say that is there's no symbols here. There's no illustrations. There's no beasts. Um, It's really not in apocalyptic language. It's simple narrative. So keep that in mind as we read it. So as many of these chapters actually tie back into the original four world empires. Remember at the beginning of the book, Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2, chapter 7, the first vision of Daniel, he sees the beasts. This is all about the order of the world empires, the Gentile rule of the ancient world, beginning with Babylon Then the Persian Empire with the Medes that were conquered, and they became together the the Medes and the Persian Empire. Then the Empire of Alexander the Great, the Grecian Empire, followed by the Roman Empire. What chapter 11 does is it zooms in on the third empire, the Grecian Empire, in detail. It does mention the Persian Empire in one verse. We're going to come to that. But the bulk of the reading today, verse 5 through 20, are details about two of those four empires that Alexander the Great's empire broke up into. Remember that? Daniel's vision in the 8th chapter was the ram, which was the Medes and the Persians. And it was charged by the goat that had a single horn. And he crushed the ram, but the horn was broken and four horns came out of the head of the goat. This, is, this truth is going to come out again here, what the four horns were. Alexander the Great, 
Egypt's empire broke up into four kingdoms. This section we're going to read focuses on two of those kingdoms. The kingdom in the north, which was Syria, and the kingdom in the south, which was Egypt. Why does it focus on those? Because Israel is right in the middle. And these two kingdoms are jostling back and forth for possession of Palestine because it's the land bridge between Africa and Asia. This section covers many kings. I counted anywhere from 10 to 13. None of them are named. But they're the kings in the north and the kings in the south. And it describes their interactions with each other, their alliances, their conflicts and war, and their intrigue. Trying to get the other one in order to have possession of that area of the world. So this is an interesting reading. I'm, I cannot explain this all to you in a single sermon, but I'm going to focus on a couple of things to just show you how this was fulfilled in history. In other words, what we're reading here is history written before it happened. Amen. This is predictive prophecy. Daniel lived in the 6th century B.C., the book of Daniel covers the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, 605, through the third year of Cyrus, which was about 536 B.C. Daniel came into Babylon as a teenager. At the end of his book, he's an old man in his late 80s or 90s. He spent his whole life in Babylon, in that part of the world. He's writing about events that took place in the 4th, 3rd, and 2nd century B.C. I'll say more about that when I come to the end of the sermon. But I think it's good to just have that little background to the reading now. So let's begin at verse 1. I'm reading from the NLT. Now in the NLT, they put verse 1 of chapter 11 with... Chapter 10, verse 31. They put the first verse to chapter 10. Many of the commentators think that that's where the division should have been. That the first verse seems to go with what was said in chapter 10. Which says this in the NLT. I have been standing beside Michael. This is the angel speaking. Remember, there, this is an angel that is giving this revelation to Daniel. We don't know who this angel is. It's not Gabriel. He was in chapter 9. He's named. If it had been Gabriel, Daniel would have told us it's Gabriel again. But it's not. It's a different. He's very high ranking. He's a heavenly messenger and he brings this revelation to Daniel. He says, I've been standing besides Michael to support and strengthen him since the first year of the reign of Darius the Mede. Now, chapter 11. Now then, I will reveal the truth to you. Three more Persian kings will reign 
to be succeeded by a fourth, far richer than the others. He will use his wealth to stir up everyone to fight against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king will rise to power who will rule with great authority and accomplish everything he sets out to do. This is, this is Alexander the Great that's being referred to here. But at the height of his power, his kingdom will be broken apart and divided into four parts. It will not be ruled by the king's descendants, nor will the kingdom hold authority it once had, for his empire will be uprooted and given to the others. So, a very quick review here in just a couple of verses of the Persian Empire and then gets to Alexander. Again, it zooms in on his empire, the third empire of the four. The king of the south will increase in power, but one of his own officials will become more powerful than he and will rule his kingdom with great strength. Some years later, an alliance will be formed between the king of the north and the king of the south. The daughter of the king of the south will be given in marriage to the king of the north to secure the alliance. But she will lose her influence over him, and so will her father. She will be abandoned along with her supporters. See how detailed this is? But when one of her relatives becomes king of the south, he will raise an army and enter the fortress of the king of the north and defeat him. When he returns to Egypt, he will carry back their idols with him, along with priceless articles of gold and silver. For some years afterward, he will leave the king of the north alone. Later, the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south, but will soon return to his own land. However, the sons of the king of the north will assemble a mighty army that will advance like a flood and carry the battle as far as the enemy's fortress. Then in a rage, the king of the south will rally against the vast forces assembled by the king of the north and will defeat them. After the enemy army is swept away, the king of the south will be filled with pride and will execute many thousands of his enemies but his success will be short-lived. A few years later, the king of the north will return with a fully equipped army far greater than before. At that time, there will be a general uprising against the king of the south. Violent men among your own people, those Jewish people, will join them in fulfillment of this vision but they will not succeed. Then the king of the north will come and lay siege to a fortified city and capture it. The best troops of the south will not be able to stand in the face of the onslaught. The king of the north will march onward unopposed. None will be able to stop him. He will pause in the glorious land of Israel. Intent on destroying it. 
He will make plans to come with the might of his entire kingdom and will form an alliance with the king of the south. He will give him a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom from within, but his plan will fail. After this, he will turn his attention to the coastland and conquer many cities. But a commander from another land will put an end to his insolence and cause him to retreat in shame. He will take refuge in his own fortresses, but will stumble and fall and be seen no more. Verse 20. His successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. But after a very brief period reign, he will die, though not from anger or in a battle. So as the angel told Daniel back in the 10th chapter that this vision, this revelation is for days yet to come. In other words, it's future. The angel told Daniel... What I'm going to reveal has to do with the future and how it impacts your people, Daniel. So we've jumped right into this. Now let's look at verses, the first opening verses, 2 through 4. So we have something said here about the Persian Empire. First of all, the, the angel tells Daniel, I'm going, to sh- I'm going to show you the truth. So he assures him right off that what he's going to reveal to him is 100% accurate. <laughs> this, is, this is not fantasy, what he's being told. This is the real facts of history. How do they know that these things really happen? The, the Bible itself really doesn't have any more information to collaborate the factual nature of this revelation. It comes from sources outside of the Bible. A Greek historian by the name of Polybius, Josephus, the Jewish historian, as well as the first and second book of Maccabees, which is part of the Apocrypha that is in some Bibles. But first and second Maccabees records these things as well as those to historians. So that's how we know the accuracy. They describe these events that we're reading here. So notice what is said about the Persian Empire. I'm going to reveal the truth to you. Three, notice, three more Persian kings will rise, will reign, to be succeeded by a fourth far richer than the others. Cyrus was on the throne at this time. Also Darius, the Mede, he was ruling over the Babylonian kingdom. He was given that kingdom as part of the Medes and the Persian Empire. But Cyrus is the main, and he's known in history as Cyrus the Great. He's actually in the Bible, the book of Nehemiah. The book of Ezra records the works of this man. And also, it's interesting to note that Isaiah, the prophet, who wrote in the 8th century, he named Cyrus 
by name four or five times in his prophecy. This is 200 years before Cyrus was born, came on the world scene. He is named by God as his servant. He's going to use Cyrus, Cyrus the Great. He's well known in Persian history. So, in addition to Cyrus now, the angel says there's going to be three more kings that will reign. That is, in the Persian Empire, and a fourth one that's going to be very, very rich. Now, who are they? Well, I can name them for you. The next king after Cyrus was his son, Cambyses. I have many dates in my notes, but I think it'll will get lost and overburdened with years if I tell you. You're not going to write it down. You're not going to remember, but I'll tell it. Tell you who these men were. So Cambyses reigned next after Cyrus, after his death, and they reigned until they died. <laughs> they didn't leave their throne and let somebody else take over. It was always to death, it would seem. So... Upon the death of Cambyses, his younger brother, Smyrdas, reigned, and only for a couple of months. He was toppled by the next king, Darius the Great. Not Darius the Mede. He has the same name, but this is a Persian Darius. And he's known in history also as the Great. Darius the First, Darius the Great. He toppled Smyrta's empire after a couple of months. Uh, he, was, he was the son of the daughter of Cyrus. So she married somebody, had Darius, and he took the throne. Darius claimed that Smyrtus was an imposter. This is an interesting thing in history I learned. He did not believe that he was the true son of Cyrus. So this was his excuse for knocking him off the throne. Yeah. So Smyrtus is second. Then we have Darius the first. I just mentioned him. The son of the daughter of Cyrus. And then Darius's son, Xerxes, comes next. Now, you know... You know who he is in the Bible? He's the same king as in the book of Esther, Ahasuerus. That's Xerxes of the Persian Empire. The kings had many name, names in the ancient world. And then Artaxerxes, who we do read about in Nehemiah, that's uh, Nehemiah's about Artaxerxes, Ezra is about Cyrus. Artaxerxes follows, but... It, this isn't, doesn't include him. It just goes up to Xerxes. Now, why the focus on Xerxes? Because he was very wealthy. He had accumulated all the wealth of the previous kings came to him. And he had so much wealth. The Bible gives us an indication of this in the book of Esther. Ahasuerus, who is Xerxes, remember what he did? He wanted to celebrate and have a feast. And brought all his officials from 127 provinces of the Persian Empire. He brought them to the capital. And for 180 days, 
Esther chapter 1 says that he showed them the riches of his splendor and glory and so on. 180 days it took him to show his riches off to 127 leaders of providence, provinces. So it gives you some idea of his wealth. He could have been the richest man in the world. So you see the accuracy of the word of God in describing these people to us. So there's 70 years of the Persian Empire summed up in a single verse. Because it's not about the Persians at this point. Angel wants to get to the Third Empire, the Grecian Empire. This is where the action is now that concerns Israel. So he passes on, verse 3, Then a mighty king will rise. Well, notice the end of verse 2. He will use his wealth to stir up everyone to fight against the kingdom of Greece. Now, you look into this. The Persian Empire made several attempts to subjugate Greece and make Greece part of the Persian Empire. They never succeeded. There were several wars. It went, over, it went on for a period of 50 years. They were trying to subdue Greece. Now we pass on to the mighty king that rises to power and who rules with great authority. The language there uh, in the ESV is, it indicates the extensiveness of his empire, he, that his dominion was great, very extensive. Not simply that he had great authority, but it, the emphasis is on how far his authority was extended. This was true of the empire of Alexander the Great. He came to power upon the death of his father, Philip II, king of Macedon. And Alexander was only 20 years old. And in 12 years, he subjugated basically almost the entire world, including the Persian Empire. He ruled from Greece all the way over to India. So this is what is being emphasized about Alexander's empire. But now notice, at the height of his power, his kingdom will be broken apart and divided. Alexander only lived to age 32. He had conquered the world in 12 years. In fact, there's a, a tradition about him that he, he wept when he saw there was no more of the world to conquer, something of that nature. By the way, tradition says that the high priest of Palestine, of the Jewish people, he showed Alexander this passage in the book of Daniel about him. And it gave him favor toward the Jewish people. Pretty much left them alone. So his kingdom breaks apart into four. That's indicating his death. He, he died at the height of his power. He was a military genius and a courageous warrior, Alexander was. His kingdom is broken and divided into four parts. So this is an important point. Again, 
I talked about this before. These are the four horns that come up in the place of the single horn on the goat back in chapter 8. What happened to Alexander's empire is it broke up into the, the, the west, the east, the north, and the south. All around the land of Israel in the middle, kind of. And four of his generals became the rulers of these four empires. Notice it says, it was ruled not by the king's descendants. Interesting detail. Alexander had a brother. He was murdered. He had a son named after himself, Alexander IV. He, some years later, also was murdered. The kingdom didn't go to his descendants, to his family. Instead went to his four generals. And I'll name them for you again. Cassander had the area of Greece and Macedonia in the east. Then there was Lysimachus, who had Thrace and Bithynia. That is Turkey and some area north of there. But the north and the south is what we're interested in, especially. The Ptolemies had Egypt. The first Ptolemy had Egypt. And in the north was a general by the name of Seleucus. He had Syria, Mesopotamia, and some other countries to the east. So that is what happened to Alexander's empire. And notice it was divided into the four winds of heaven. The four, point, the four points on the compass, basically, is what it's telling us. Now, we have the prophecy concerning Egypt and Syria. So now this is the focus. To come to the kings of the south, which are who? The Ptolemies. Apparently there's some movie that involves this family that I've heard about. Current, was current not long ago about ancient history involving the Ptolemies. Ptolemy in Egypt and then Seleucus in the north who had Syria. So the king of the south is mentioned eight times, but it's not the same king. It's going to transfer from one to the other. And so when you read the historical uh, explanation of what these verses mean, you'll see that they're changing names. It's Ptolemy the second, Ptolemy the fifth. I'm going to, when I give you an illustration here of uh, the accuracy of the text, in just a minute, we will notice that it's Ptolemy the fifth that's being talked about. And the same is true of the Seleucus, the Seleucid Empire. Now, remember who came from that area that we talked about in the past? Remember the name Antiochus, Epiphanes? Well, we're coming to him again, but not yet. He's not in this section. He's in the next section of the chapter, and there's a lot of space given to him. But his brother is going to be mentioned here. 
Antiochus III. So these, these were the two most powerful kingdoms that emerged from Alexander's divided empire. And again, the reason for the interest for Daniel is because they are right around Israel. They flank Palestine in the north and the south. And they are wanting to control that part of the world. Now, notice verses 15 and 16. I'm jumping down here. Let's look at how this was fulfilled in history. Then the king of the north, this is Antiochus III, not Antiochus IV Epiphanes, the despicable man that's going to be mentioned in verse 21. But this is the third. He comes and lays siege to a fortified city and captures it. This is believed to be his laying siege to the little city north of Palestine by the name of Sidon. We've all heard of Tyre and Sidon. They're up there in Phoenicia, right on the Mediterranean coast north of Israel. This was a city that had a wall around it, and it belonged to the Egyptians. It was a fortified city of the Egyptians. So this is ancient history. Antiochus III captured that city. He took Sidon. And he gained control. By gaining control of Phoenicia, he also gained control of Palestine when he did that. That was the beginning of the Seleucid domination of the land of Israel, which was a nightmare for the Jewish people. When the Greeks from Syria, that part of the world, gained control of the land of Israel. Notice how it is how it's put there. He comes against the he lays siege to a fortified city, he captured it. The best troops of the south will not be able to stand in the face of the onslaught. The king of the north will march onward unopposed. None will be able to stop him. He will pause in the glorious land. Now the NLT makes it clear what it's talking about. In the, the, it simply says in the original, the glorious land. does not say the land of Israel. But the you NLT know, clarifies it. So we understand it's talking about Palestine. Why is Israel called the glorious land? Well, because that's where the one true and living God has revealed himself. This is where his temple was. This is where his worship was conducted. This was the land flowing with milk and honey that was given to his people. It's a beautiful land, glorious land, where God's honor and beauty was the centerpiece. And it's actually called the center of the world in the prophet, by the prophet Ezekiel. So there we see the fulfillment of, of those of that section. Now, move on to verses 17 to 19. This is an interesting one that comes to the end. 
There's something else that Antiochus III did. He made an alliance with Ptolemy V in the south, in Egypt. He made an alliance. And to confirm this alliance and make it really great for Ptolemy, he gives Ptolemy his daughter to marry. And you know who that was? Cleopatra. Now, I know there were several Cleopatras in history. He gave her Cleopatra. And he was hoping by giving him his daughter to somehow subvert his kingdom from within using his daughter in marriage. But what happened, it completely failed because she remained loyal to her husband, Ptolemy V. Cleopatra did. She didn't side with her father. She encouraged her husband to make an alliance with Rome. So Egypt and Rome got closer and had a partnership. So his plan failed. Notice the text says that. He will give him a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom from within. See, this is very deceptive on his part. This is the political intrigue that often goes on in the political world, trying to trap each other, trying to hurt each other, but doing it in an underhanded manner. But his plan will fail because Cleopatra was not going to turn against her husband. She sided against her father, Antiochus III. Now, what happens is, notice verse 18. After this, he, that is Antiochus III, the king of the north, he will turn his attention to the coastland and conquer many cities. This is referring to Antiochus's campaign up into Asia. And he conquered many of the Egyptian cities that were on the coast of Asia, but it also included some Greek islands. And Rome had warned Antiochus, leave the Greeks alone. But apparently he thumbed his nose at Rome or something because he, he did capture the Greek islands. And Rome responded and came to him, came after the army of Antiochus and slaughtered him. His army was defeated at the famous battle known as the Battle of Magnesia. Antiochus was humiliated. Notice what it says. A commander from another land. This is the Roman general Scipio. That appears here, because he was the one that led the Roman army against Antiochus III. A commander from another land will put an end to his insolence. That indicates that Antiochus III was taunting, scorning, perhaps Rome from a distance, mocking them. 
But the Romans, they put an end to it, put an end to him, and he retreated in shame. Apparently, he became a vassal of Rome. That was the terms of peace. He became a vassal of Rome. So he was humiliated, Antiochus III, the king of the north at that time. And it says that he retreated to his own fortresses, meaning he went back to Syria. And he was assassinated there. But notice how the word of God puts it. He will stumble and fall and be seen no more. You know, one thing you notice as you read through this is that you have these these attempts to conquer one another, but many of them, they just fail. They come to naught. So much of history is about that, man conquering each other. Well, let me... uh, say a few things now about this in closing. So again here we have predicted prophecy confirmed by secular history. Again, Polybius, Josephus, and those first and second Maccabees, they're the ones that tell us how these things actually came about in history. The Bible is always 100% correct when it gives a prophecy. The prophets of the Old Testament, there's two aspects of their ministry. They preached and they predicted. They preached, thus saith the Lord, and they came with God's message. But many times they predicted things. And this is how the people of God could know whether a prophet was a true spokesman for Yahweh. The thing had to come to pass that they said... If it did not come to pass, the law said that person is to be put to death because he spoke in the name of Yahweh as a false messenger. He said, this is going to happen, but it didn't happen. So what are people to think? God doesn't know the future. So it comes back on making God look bad before other people. God doesn't know what he's talking about if this is his spokesman. So... The Lord takes it very seriously when somebody stands up to prophesy. And we have many people today that make predictions, that claim to have the gift of prophecy, and a lot of it is a lot of folly. It doesn't happen. Got to be aware of that. You know, man wants to know the future. This is an insatiable desire that is in the heart of man. He wants to know what's coming down the pike. I mean, it's that desire that gave birth to fortune cookies and horoscopes and all the other things that people turn to to try to get some insight of the future. The Bible is very clear about that because when one does that, he's entering into the realm of the occult. This is evil supernaturalism, is the terminology that Merrill Unger uses in his book on biblical demonology. i never forget it. Evil supernaturalism is in the occult. In other words, things really happen. There really is information given. Magical things happen, but it's evil. It's a, it's a manifestation of evil, and we as Christians need to be aware of that. That's happening in our own day even see it on TV, the things that people are doing nowadays. 
It's pretty mind-boggling. But this is the old occultic practice known as divination, which is forbidden in the Bible in no uncertain terms. Deuteronomy chapter 18 forbids it. Divination, that is, wanting to know the future, consulting a person, consulting the dead, consulting uh, some sort of spiritual messenger. People don't know who they're dealing with when they get information from the unseen world. People also look at the inner parts of an animal. They read water. They read all kinds of things, thinking the future is there. This is all forbidden in the Word of God. But the Bible, it's 100% accurate when it comes to prophecy. 100%. This is a unique feature of the Word of God. This is one of the ways that you can simply explain to somebody who has a, a legitimate question, like, how do you know the Bible is the Word of God? It's a sincere question, not a smokescreen. They really want to know, what is your basis for believing that the Bible is the Word of God? Well, you could take them to prophecy as a good way, or uh, archaeology has always confirmed the historicity of the Bible. The digs in Israel, never been anything uncovered that has uh, contradicted the Bible when it comes to its history. On the other hand, the Book of Mormon, they never found a single artifact, so the Smithsonian Institute has said, never found a single artifact in the earth to confirm the Book of Mormon. But over and over again, the Bible is confirmed over by archaeology. But the Word of God as predictive prophecy is one of the unique features of Scripture. 100% accurate. It's detailed. Not these general things, you know, uh, that people say that could pretty much find a fulfillment somewhere. But it's very, it's very specific, very detailed. That's what we have here in Daniel 11. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. So, and secondly, believing that, it, it tells me that God knows the future. Clearly, he knows the future. It's important to bring that out today because there has been a new theism that's come up. Not recently, this has been within the last 20 or 30 years. A belief in the God of the Bible that says he does not know the future. There are some who claim to be theologians that hold to that view. God does not know the future. How could that be? He's, he predicts the future. I mean, this is one of his claims that makes him Yahweh. I mean, I think of Isaiah 44, 7. Who is like me? Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. <laughs> I mean, this is, I am the Lord, there's none else. This is what he does. Now, he knows the future, not simply because he looks down the corridors of time and sees what's going to happen. That's not how he knows it. He knows it because it's his plan. He has made a determined plan that is in place. Remember the, the quote, I've given it to you before, 
by the Puritan Stephen Charnock in his book, The Existence and Attributes of God. Stephen Charnock said, very simple, he first planned it and then knew what he, he first willed it and then knew what he willed. You know, he, that's, that's a beautiful way of summing it up. He first willed it and then knew what he willed. Now, is that biblical? Well, think of what Peter said on the day of Pentecost in his sermon in Acts 2. Talking about the death of Christ, he said that he was crucified. Listen to Peter's language and the order. He was crucified according to the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Determinate counsel has to do with his preordained plan. But then he adds to it his foreknowledge. That's the order. There's the plan and then the foreknowledge. This is why Jesus could say, tell his disciples months before, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to crucify me. They're going to spit on me. I mean, he's very specific about what they're going to do to him. They're going to flog me and crucify me. And on the third day, I will rise again. Very specific. How does he know that? It's all part of the plan. But he foreknows it. God knows the future because it's his plan. Now, I want to add one thing that's really interesting that we also learn from the Bible. And that is that God even knows the possibilities of what could be. But it doesn't happen. Because man chooses a certain way, and so it's going to go in this direction. But if he made a different choice, then it would be a completely different outcome. God even knows the possibilities. For he said, I'll give you one example. Woe unto you, Jesus names the cities, Bethsaida, Chorazan. For if the mighty works that have been done here had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah or Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. In other words, he's telling us God knows that if those mighty works had been done in those cities, but they weren't. (laughs) They didn't have those miracles performed in front of them to bring them to repentance or to the knowledge of the true God. Had they been, Jesus said they would have repented. That's a possibility that never occurred, but God knows even the possible things that could happen. That's how I'm bringing that up to show how extensive God's knowledge is. He knows all the possibilities. There's other illustrations of that same thing. And then finally, let's bring it home to our, our personal lives. You know, one of the great things to know when you're a young Christian is that your way in through life, your journey of faith, is also guided and directed by God. God is concerned about the details of your life. 
where you've been, where you're going, what you do, who you marry, and all the details. This is why Solomon tells his sons in Proverbs 3, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Notice he doesn't say believe in the Lord. Many people believe in God, but they're not trusting Him. Trust is another level of faith. And God wants to bring His people to the place of trusting Him. That is, where you are relying on Him in your day-to-day living. Not simply acknowledge that there's a supreme being. The demons believe and tremble. They believe in God more than any of us do, in fact. But God wants us to trust him. Now, he's very specific. Solomon's very good about trusting God for what? Trusting the Lord, notice, with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Boy, is that a temptation. And often it's what we're thinking that gets in the way. And it, it, it detracts us from putting all our confidence in the Lord. He says, don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And here's the promise. And he will direct your path. This is a promise. God will do that. He will guide you through life. He has your way marked out. And we are to spend our life living in utter faith and confidence in him. Yeah. That's Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. A good verse, verses to memorize when you're a young Christian and fall back on time and time again to get you through those times when you're at the crossroads. I don't know what I should do here. Should I take this job? Is this somebody I should be serious about, considering them for my spouse later? I mean, when we need help, God answers it when we are trusting him and ask him for wisdom and guidance. He still guides his people. We're never too old as believers for divine guidance. We, I need it every day. And the older I get, the more I realize I need to depend on God for everything. I go throughout the day and I'm just thanking the Father for everything. I'm so aware of everything I got is a blessing. And I just thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thanking him for everything. He wants us to live in utter confidence and trust in him. Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.